This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. All right, thank you so much for tuning in, Austin. Lovely day out there. Um, We've got a wonderful show for you. We're going to be talking uh, all about Oregon wine, the Willamette Valley uh, the Willamette Valley Vineyards, a, a wonderful uh, producer there in the Willamette Valley. We'll be hearing from Christine Collier, who is the managing director of Willamette Valley Vineyards, and joined in the studio by Michaela Pope. Uh, this was an interview that we did uh, several weeks ago, but uh, we're really glad to have uh, Christine and Michaela talking to Co-op Radio and to Austin, Texas. So we're going to start out by hearing uh, a little bit of the origins of the Willamette Valley and the early days of the Willamette Valley Vineyard. So uh, joined uh, via phone and recorded a couple weeks ago. This is going to be Christine Collier starting us off. Well, um, the Willamette Valley is a very special place because it was really a place that um, people um, that were uh, based in California were looking for when they were looking for a place um, that, ha- that had a cooler climate uh, to grow the wines that they really wanted to make. They wanted to make these wines that had this beautiful balancing acidity and ripened just at the edge of the growing season. And California wasn't allowing them to do that anymore with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. So they, they looked at weather, and it was our climate uh, that they were attracted to due to our long growing season, dry growing season, but not warm enough to where the grapes would over-ripen. Right. So there was a lot of wine industry pioneers um, in the late 60s and early 1970s that packed up their cars from California. We kind of jokingly call them <laughs> California refugees at this point um, right. in search for that cooler climate. Did and, people think um, that they were a little crazy uh, doing this? I mean, because in the 60s, there were relatively almost no vineyards planted, right? Oh, absolutely. People were definitely deterring them away, saying, Oregon, that's, you know, moss grows on the people up there because <laughs> we have such a reputation of being such a wet climate. Um, so, you know, some came up and settled in Southern Oregon and the Umpqua Valley, which is just about two hours south of the Willamette Valley, not quite making it to our cool climate, um, because they, you know, were scared, but there were a few, um, the Lett family that, um, you know, came here first and just really had this vision, but it was a complete, um, you know, complete leap of faith. And uh, they had to really have a lot of determining vision in those early years because there was no neighbor to ask, you know, advice or to go, um, you know, borrow your farm equipment when right. it broke down. They were, they were definitely alone. Yeah, on a, on a, on a stranded island for sure. And, and, and that community is really important for, you know, not, not just borrowing equipment and know-how, but just the whole industry. I mean, are there laboratories and are there, you know, are all of the support industry for the wine industry? Right. 
That's how our founder really um, got introduced to the Oregon wine industry is in the early 1960s, the first uh, winemaker um, post-prohibition came up from California, Richard Summer, and he had the dream of planting vines in the Umpqua Valley. But since there had been no wineries, um, he didn't know how, how to go about getting state licensing. So he went into the nearest small town where Jim Bruno's dad was working as the um, town lawyer, and he was the one that helped him get his first winery license. And oh. that's really how Jim was introduced to wine wow. um, at a very young age. His dad kind of proclaimed around the dinner table when they would uh, try some of Richard's wines that eventually the hillsides in Oregon would be filled with wine grapes and that this is just the beginning. Wow. Yeah. You got to keep the lawyers happy for sure. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so tell us how the, the Willamette Valley vineyards, um, uh, their, you know, your holdings were established. We mentioned Jim already. Um, can you give us an idea of the growth? Sure. Yeah. So from that time where Jim was introduced to wine around his uh, dinner table he actually um, went to college here in the Willamette Valley, and um, his first job out of college was working as a lobbyist. And he got hired by the Oregon Wine Growers Association before they were really established. They were actually looking for someone to help them go to the legislature and get funding to invest in this industry that they um, really believed you know, was a possibility. So Jim worked with this handful of wine growers and um, set up the legal framework that allowed us to fund research and um, to secure the right plant and clonal material that's right for our soils. So working alongside them, he really got inspired to plant his own vineyard and uh, set out to look for where that best place would be. And he settled just south of Salem in the hills here. We are a state vineyard and winery sits on this, um, this large volcanic flow, um, so very iron-rich soils, and he planted the vineyard in 1983. And um, it was actually amazing that he sold his first crop of wine grapes uh, in the mid-1980s to Dick Erath, which is a, you know, a very well-known name in the Oregon wine industry. Right. And after selling his grapes for just one year, he decided he couldn't do that again. He needed to make his own wine. Um, But he had no means. You know, he wasn't someone that was a doctor turned passion um, (laughs) business. This is something that uh, he was working, you know, multiple jobs just to afford the uh, land that we sit on today. So he was, uh, he was really thinking about how he could do this, and he uh, got this idea that um, if he got enough people to believe that the Oregon wine industry um, was a worthwhile dream, and they invested small amounts of money, you know, we're talking 1000 to $2,000, that uh, we could be community-funded, and that's what we did. We actually... Um, in the late 80s, started gathering these wine enthusiasts. And today we have over 9,000 wine enthusiast owners that um, invest in our company to really help us grow. And, uh, you know, the legal way to do that was uh, to become a publicly owned winery, which is 
very uncommon. Very uncommon, um, yes. The, yeah, that's really kind of the, you know, one of the most unique things about our winery is it's not owned by just one person. It's owned by 9,000 people, and that gives us a lot of strength because they support us so well. And and we should say, you know, so definitely in the spirit of co-op radio, you know, uh, we're co-op radio here, and um, and it, it almost has a, it's a twist on the cooperative mentality maybe in, uh, in Europe, except instead of giving grapes, which then kind of translate into income, it, it's, it's, it's that, that, that financial support, but it still is that community. So it's a wonderful idea. And it started out like that, we should say, that's correct? Right. It did start out like that. Um, We really believe here that, you know, if you're owned by the people that then enjoy our wines and um, share them with their family and friends that, you know, our business is to serve them and to serve their interests. And uh, we kind of think that this idea is um, what kind of fixes capitalism is, you know, we're here as a service to our community and to the people that really love and enjoy Oregon wines and just want to continue exploring and sharing that Oregon wine story. Yeah. So does that allow, do you think that that um, allows you to uh, produce the the amount at the high quality that you do currently? I mean, uh, it would almost be uh, does it give you a little bit of a, a safety net, uh, should I say, or 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 no? It's just kind of that founding principle, and you know you've taken and the, the management has taken it from there. No, it certainly gives us a huge advantage. Um, we're really fortunate that um, after Jim's first vintage here, having all that support from those initial two thousand owners, right. within two years we became the leading winery in Oregon. Um, by volume. And that really was never our goal. Um, But that's just what uh, happened when you have that many people that are your consumers, but also helping you place the wines in the restaurants that they're dining at and, um, you know, sharing it with the retail owner of where they shop. That was just the evolution. And now, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to travel around and uh, share our wines. And I meet our owners, you know, everywhere. I was just in New Jersey and hosted a wine dinner and there were eight owners at a dinner of wow. 40. Oh, so wonderful. pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, so, and, and Jim is still, is still active today. Um, how can, can we give, can you give us a, a, a little bit of an idea of the evolution? So you started out the estate in 1983, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's grown, you know, your, your land holdings have, have grown over the years. Can you mm-hmm. give us an idea to that trajectory? Yeah. So um, how I mentioned that in the early 90s, we became the leading right. Oregon winery by size. Uh, the, probably the downside to that was we just had grown to a point where we couldn't keep up with a planting and um, didn't have the luxury of being a state, uh, having a state vineyards other than the one site that we sit on. And uh, in the 2000s, that was something that we really wanted to change. And, or sorry, it was the mid-90s. We really wanted to change because we want to be able to grow and have, you know, the highest quality uh, fruit for our programs. But it really took um, going out and finding those collaborative partnerships. So the first one uh, that that uh, came to fruition was um, 
Oregon wine pioneer, Bill Fuller. Bill was one of those first uh, California winemakers that came up and in 1973 planted his vineyard up near Forest Grove, which is in the North Willamette Valley. Um, He has a beautiful site up there that sits in the coastal range. And Jim had always wanted to purchase fruit from Bill because Bill at the time was the the famed, esteemed winemaker that got all the best scores and won um, the London International Fair, got the first top 100 on wine spectator for Oregon wine. So Bill really had this great reputation, but he never wanted to let any of his fruit grow because I... you know, he, he wanted to make wine from it. Right, right. Um, but there was this, this phone call that came in one day to Jim where Bill said, you know, Jim, you've been after my fruit for years. Um, I'll let you have it as long as you also, you know, buy the building where the roof is leaking, buy the forklift that doesn't (laughs) raise. And what he was really, um, mentioning is he wanted to merge together. So we actually did a merger with Tualatin, vineyards, and that's now one of our uh, three estate sites. And then um, in the late 2000s, we were approached by our um, the owners of our Elton Vineyard, Dick and Betty O'Brien, and they, were, they planted in 1983, the same year Jim did, and were really looking to slow down, not to have to do the farming themselves anymore after you know, almost 30 years. And they selected us as their succession plan. So through those, um, you know, three um, three partnerships, we um, got nearly. We now have nearly 500 acres of estate vineyards that are all certified sustainable, and um, are in the process of planting quite a few more the past couple years. So that's how we've been able to supply our own programs. Yeah. We're really proud that all of our Pinot Noir, our barrel-aged Pinot Noir is now estate grown, which was a huge uh, accomplishment for yeah, us. Yeah, I should say for folks listening out there that it's it's very easy to grow by buying bulk wine, right? Or or but mm-hmm. you know, you can buy bulk wine and and bottle it and and the consumer is none the wiser. And to grow in the way that you did is in my my estimation admirable and you know, by growing through uh, vineyards and and also, you know, not just buying a vineyard but working with these folks who have the history and they kind of know how the vineyard uh, reacts and 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 lives and expresses itself is is another because correct me if I'm wrong but you you do still have some of these folks who um, like Bill and and whatnot who who still are kind of along with making the wine right or or helping and consulting yeah Yeah. Bill is actually still working on our cellar he just celebrated his 80th birthday in January (laughs) But um, it's been really fun. We brought him out of retirement in 2013 to come back and work with our team here. And he even makes a small amount of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay using his traditional methods, um, you know, which are a little different from what we currently do today. Right. And, uh, and we call that bottling Vintage 40, his 2013, celebrating his 40th year in Oregon. Oh, um, wow. It's great having him back in the cellar. He is um, a great mentor for us. He has a great palate, but he also just experienced so many vintages, right. growing conditions here that 
you know, in these past three years where we've had three very warm vintages, he's been helpful in, you know, fermentation plans and ways to make sure that the Oregon style is still expressed, even if it's, you know, a warm year. Yeah, that's it's wonderful, and it's wonderful to have that that history. And I bet folks can find more information about about him and everybody we're talking about here at wvv.com. Is that is that where we should direct folks? Yep. Yeah, our website has a lot of our it's beautiful um, stories website. listed out. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so wvv.com. And if you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. And we're talking with um, with Christine Collier, who is uh, Managing Director at Willamette Valley Vineyards, and Michaela Pope, who is here in the studio. And she's being uh, silent. Uh, Michaela is having fun in Austin. Um, say hi, Michaela. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> she's spreading the good word. Um and, and, you know, I'd like to ask both of you the challenge of conveying the story. You know, Michaela's here mm-hmm. talking with distributors, probably meeting a lot of folks from the industry here in Austin. Quite honestly, it's not a challenge. Uh, every single person you find that works at Willamette Valley has just immersed themselves in the culture because yeah. uh, what we do is just so incredible. And so it's easy to come out here, meet new people, and chat with them about it. Right. I don't even intend to. I just go to a restaurant to eat, and then all of a sudden they see me like with a bottle of wine in my suitcase or something that has like a six-pack, and they start asking me about wine. Right. And then I start talking, and it comes out. Yeah. Everybody here is very passionate about what we do and very passionate about the Oregon wine story. Right. And and I think Oregon is in a very strong moment right now. People are very interested, which is sometimes a challenge when you have a region full of tiny producers. Um, that can be a, a because there there might be some folks who have are only available at the winery. There might be some folks who are in distribution, but it's you know they don't have the marketing budget to really you know get out there. Um, and then a lot of people rely on uh, some of the larger wineries to 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 spread the word and to and to be visiting the markets and mm-hmm. such. Well, the other thing I think is very unique about Willamette is. Jim's a very passionate person. Like, right. I'm sure he's in his 60s, but he comes across as being 32. Right, right. And you'll notice a lot of lively energy around. Like, I know it really surprised me when they're like, would you like to go out to Austin? I was like, yes, this has been on the top place of my places right. that I would love to visit. Right. And to really have that faith in every single one of their employees to spread their story is phenomenal and not that common. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, guys, can we talk about, um, Christine, I might have you give us a, a an overview of the, the wines that you produce. So we kind of touched on the single vineyard and the barrel uh, aged wine, and maybe we'll talk about, let's start there, talking about how you kind of make those wines, how they differentiate each other. I'm sure that highlighting the vineyard is is one of the main goals, but do you do things a little bit differently in the winery? Yeah, Absolutely. So here, our focus, like many producers in the Willamette Valley, is on Pinot Noir. Right. It's our signature grape, and um, it counts for about 65% of our production here at the winery. We make many, many different styles. Right. Um, when we are harvesting, it's actually, harvest is a very stressful time here, not because we don't love it, but because there's so <laughs> many picking decisions Right. We farm by block. Um, some of our blocks are just 0.3 acres up to four to five acres. So there's about 90 pick decisions that have to be made 
and uh, we keep those lots separate. Um, so when they come here to the winery, we're processing them all separate. We're then barreling them down all into um, barrel lots to keep them isolated. So when we do start blending, we have the luxury of going through and really going block by block to craft those blends. But it takes a lot of logistics. Everything is in two-ton fermenters, which are, you know, um, for a winery our size, very, very uncommon. But we actually have to tent our parking lot during harvest, heat it, um, and uh, so that we have room to expand with all these two-ton fermenters. Wow. And they're all hand-punched down. Um, our enologist has to test and sample them every day. As a winemaking team, we get here bright and early, and we go through and we taste everything to mm-hmm. see how it's coming along. So we really do take small bin fermentation and small lot winemaking all the way through our programs. Right. Um, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to kind of um, uh, reinforce that which you said that a large winery can very easily just say, "Oh, here's this 200 acre vineyard. We're just going to harvest it in one swoop." Whereas uh, the, the 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 grapes might not behave the same way in each tiny little block. So you're um, separating those and picking them differently and treating them differently, and that is that's the real differentiation between um, you know a, a mass produced wine. And, and a wine that is really selected. And I would love to say when I first started on, it was during harvest time. Yeah. And I was one of the earliest people to get there in the morning. And I remember getting a warning because our cellar was just lined with these small bin fermentations going on. Right, they said, right. don't go down there in the morning because they haven't aired it out yet. And you're probably going to pass out from the CO2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and, and, um, and, and so, and then also when you talk about uh, punch downs being a, a different way of treating than your pump overs, which yeah. might be mm-hmm. a little bit easier to do on a larger scale, right? So that's another decision that you make that it's quality first, um, and then ease comes later. Right? Yeah, we have, um, you know, each site, Tualatin has a pretty firm rustic tannin. This estate site's probably our most structured. They all have, um, you know, their different characteristics. So when we're tasting in the morning, we might say, you know, let's only do one more punch down today. Let's not do the two because we just don't need more extraction at this point. Right. And that's something that if everything is automated or you're, um, just lined with tanks and pump overs, you don't get that much control. Right. And I would say that that's one thing that our winemaker Joe, myself, and Gabby were control freaks all the way down, right. you know, temperatures and um, the amount of cold storage we use. Everything is just to. Uh, create an environment where we can make those decisions. Right. So, you, so you call those the barrel aged uh, wines or the single vineyard wines? Mm-hmm. Is is that that correct? And then, and then, what are some of the other wines you make? Sure. So, we actually make over forty different bottlings here. Wow. Some that are as small as a hundred cases, um, and then they go up from there. Um, those smaller lot or those smaller bottlings would be our single vineyards, like our Elton Vineyard, our Tualatin Estate. Um, our Brno block. And then from there, um, we make our estate, which is the cuvee of all three sites. And that's really our flagship wine uh-huh. that people down in Austin can find relatively easily um, that you'll see on a lot of restaurant lists. Right. And um, that wine is, um, you know, when we blend it, we take a lot of pride in that because our name 
being Willamette Valley Vineyards, has the Appalachian name in it. And so what we're trying to do is to blend a wine that really reflects our region so that if any Willamette Valley producer, whether it's, you know, our one of our neighbors or um, someone that's just very familiar with the Willamette Valley from having a lot of wines from here, that they have a lot of trust in that bottling, right. that that's going to really exude um, the region and the people. Yeah. So it's a more it's a very classic style. Um, you know, you'll find that it has a lot of bright red fruit, a lot of earth, a lot of spice, um, you know, balance with that Oregon acidity that we're so known for, and also very food friendly. Our right. wines being cool climate um, with that acidity tend to have lower um, barrel influence percentages are really, you know, food friendly friendly, age-worthy wines. Yeah, do, and so I want to ask you, we, we kind of, um, you mentioned that uh, you want to get behind the Willamette Valley AVA, and you do have a few vineyards in some of the sub-appellations, or, or, you know, the, the standalone AVAs, Eola Amity Hills, and and mm-hmm. some others. Do you do you find that that, and, and you look at it from a global point of view, uh, I mean, having to, you know, really uh, be behind the image of the winery, do you think that consumers are... Are are understanding the sub the the, the sub appellations? Um, are are you hesitant to put it on it because you're allowed to say Willamette Valley even though it's within the Eola Amity, Amity Hills? Mm-hmm. For those of for those people that come to visit Oregon and you know do a wine country weekend where they're tasting you know eight to twelve producers throughout the sub appellations right. they really will find the distinct differences because Pinot Noir is so reflective of where it's grown right. and that's why we love it but um, it is you know I have vineyards that you know across the vineyard aisle the Pinot Noir tastes and performs so differently right. so you really do see it because the soils here are very diverse um, most of our vineyards sit on volcanic soils but um, vineyards in the Ribbon Ridge, where we just um, purchased our first um, block of land to plant a new vineyard, that sits on Willikinsey soils, which are a marine-based sediment that really do produce Pinot Noirs that are more broad, more bold and opulent, um, a little softer on the acidity. Um, But, you know, people need to know the geographics to really identify those sub-Appalachian names or they need to have had a lot of education. So most of the time we are focusing on telling the Willamette Valley story. Right. And um, through our single vineyards, we will put the sub-Appalachian designation on it. Um, but our flagship bottling, we stick to the Willamette Valley Appalachian um, because it's more recognizable and we don't want we don't want the labeling to be an intimidating factor for the consumer. Right, right, right. Um, and and we'll see where where that goes. You know, with time, uh, there might be more knowledge in, in the consuming public, and um, and that's yeah. certainly what we try and do here on this show. Um, wonderful. If, w- w- let's take a short break. Uh, I'm here with Christine Collier on the line from Oregon, and Michaela Pope is here in the studio. Um, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio K O O P, Hornsby, Austin. Stay tuned. Support comes from Capital Rubber Stamp, a family-owned and operated business located in South Austin at 3314 South Congress, offering custom stamps, printing, engraving, 
trophies, signs, and banners with a one-day turnaround time for all stamps. Shipping and delivery are available. For more information, you may call 512-447-0335 or visit capstamp.com. Support comes from the Bullock Museum's Texas Focus film series, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bonnie and Clyde, starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, with a 35mm screening Thursday, April 20th in the Texas Spirit Theater. Reception starts at 6pm. Tickets at thestoryoftexas.com. Okay, we're back. This is another bottle down, and we're talking about the Willamette Valley and uh, the Willamette Valley Vineyards today, and it's a wonderful show. I'm so happy to have as my guests Christine Collier, who is Managing Director of Willamette Valley Vineyards, and Michaela Pope, who is Ambassador. Um, Let's jump in back into the interview, and and, uh, Christine, we have big news, right? There is something that is just being released, very exciting. I read about it. It's not yet available in Austin, but uh, you you are starting to make sparkling wine. Yeah, we actually (laughs) are releasing our first Method Champenois sparkling wine this weekend here at the winery. Um, We have invited our winery chef to do pairings and... um, we're actually doing some celebratory sabering on the hour uh, to get people in the fun. But this project started back in 2014. That was our first vintage where we partnered with um, the former winemaker, assistant winemaker at Argyle, which is a really reputable sparkling house here in Oregon. And he had this this dream to go out and provide uh, sparkling wine services to... um, to vineyards around the valley, kind of more grower style. And uh, that's really what our bottling's focused on. Um, we have a small block of Espiguet 352 here at our estate vineyard in South Salem. And that's a champagne clone that Jim Bruneau, um originally planted in the early 90s here at the estate. And it's never performed the best for us in our steel chard- or our still Chardonnays. It's always been a little steely, very austere, very acid-driven. So when we had the opportunity to kind of dedicate it back to its heritage by doing sparkling wine, it was really exciting for us in the vineyard. And uh, then it's a 50% base wine out of that, and then 50% um, some matured vines from our Tualatin estate, some self-fruited pomard. So um, can we, we can we can we take us just a moment to step back and 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 um, talk about how and, and this is wonderful to have you say that Chardonnay performs totally different as a still wine as opposed to a sparkling wine. Um, if you were tasting in Champagne the still uh, what they call the Van Clare, the the still wines they're almost brutal to taste right mm-hmm. because there's so much acid and and the grapes just perform differently um and and so so you've had this block of of chardonnay because Jim planted it way back when and and then mm-hmm. and and it's just kind of now it's always been blended back and now you're you're highlighting it so that's very cool yeah it's definitely it it, it really is exciting to see a block kind of go back to what it's you know, supposed to be and what it's so good at. It's a block that, um, you know, for sparkling wine, we're harvesting very early in this 
in the season. And it just, it preserves its acidity so well. It has the citrus and this green apple and a ton of, you know, minerality, just steely, chalky minerality. And yeah, for our programs, it just didn't have the roundness and the texture that we were looking for. Um, And it, it really didn't do well with any type of oak influence. And so by harvesting it and putting it into the sparkling wine where, you know, the primary fermentation is done in stainless and then it goes into its bottle um, for its leaves aging, that is, it's so well suited to, um, to it. And so it's been a fun fun debut this, yeah. this vintage well good luck with the debut that's awesome and and i'd also like to say you know it's 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 very tricky it's interesting that you're working with um is his name andrew davis that to mm-hmm. to, to do this because the equipment used to make sparkling wine is incredibly um costly right i mean to do the yeah. disgorgement and and whatnot is it's, it's not like you can just make the decision to make sparkling wine right you know? Right, and, and especially such, um, you know, boutique qu- quantities. Right. We made just 400 cases of this first sparkling wine. And uh, the equipment can start anywhere, you know, uh, half a million dollars. Wow. And it's very specialized to have, you know, the um, uh, to have the riddling services right. and, uh, and the corker and the capsule. It's um, very, it's very much specialized, but... Andrew, who, you know, went out and kind of talked with wineries and said, this is what I want to do. He, he went for it and purchased this equipment. And I believe he has about a dozen vineyards he's working with now to produce these, you know, boutique bottlings of um, Method Champenois. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's get into, so we'll look for, for that. Maybe at some point you'll have it in distribution, <laughs> maybe many years from now, but um, I'm assuming it'll be just winery, uh, wine club, et cetera, for now, right? For now it is. For now it's yeah. available through the winery, but um, we do have big plans for the program. Cool. Um, we are, um, we're actually in the process of purchasing a vineyard that will be um, dedicated to growing grapes for sparkling wine. Um, we'll still keep that Espiguet clone in the program as well. Um, but, you know, someday, you know, just with the rate that people are really kind of looking to Oregon and really loving um, right. some of the styles of wine, it's, you know, definitely um, foreseeable that Austin could be toasting with Willamette Valley Vineyard soon. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll look forward to that. So, um, and, and do you, are there plans to plant Meunier or, or is it going to be Chardonnay and Pinot Noir? Right now, we don't have any plans for Pinot Meunier. Um, the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay is what um, is going into the programs, right. but that's mainly just because I haven't probably done enough research on Pinot Meunier <laughs> to know, do we have a great site w- uh, to put it um, and to just do more research and tasting. Argyle has some planted, but that's right. really about it. So it's pretty scarce up here. All right, well, let's go to the Valley de la Marne together. We'll, 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 let, we'll do some <laughs> Perfect. research. Perfect, I love field trips. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, let's get into, um, so we talked, you know, the, the, the new sparkling, we talked the, the barrel-aged reds. Um, what are some of the more workhorse reds, you know, folks, the pinots that folks might see more readily on the on the shelves in, in Austin, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Our um, whole cluster, Pinot Noir, is our most popular Pinot right. Noir that we make here. And um, it's actually, it is one of my favorite to make just because of the process. It's a very, very unique fermentation. When, um, 
probably the unique thing about Whole Cluster versus other wineries, maybe entry wine or entry um, uh, price point wine, is really that Whole Cluster is not a declassified blend. It's not that we blend everything else and then whatever is left goes into Whole Cluster. It really is the opposite because the fermentation process, you have to dedicate that fruit um, right away. Um, when it hits the winery, we have to process it in a different way. So it really starts in the vineyard by finding the vineyard blocks that are very clean. Um, we go through and hand harvest because we have to leave those Pinot Noir clusters fully intact. Right. We hand harvest everything, but it's very important. It's this one that the fruit maintains intact. And uh, we have it delivered to the winery, and it bypasses all machinery. So I always joke, if you're looking for a wine that really is natural, um, this doesn't see it's a stemmer, doesn't see a crusher. It sees it just gets elevated into um, a tank where we then close the lid and evacuate the oxygen by pumping in some CO2. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the fermentation starts intra-berry because the pressure inside that tank is so high um, in it the berries explode and they release this beautiful, um, you know, Pinot Noir juice that really tastes exactly like how we, you know, we made our picking decision. Um, and it trickles down to the bottom of the tank and it gets racked off. So it's not spending extended time with its skins and with its stems to really develop much of a tannin structure. So it is a very approachable, easy drinking, you know, very low astringency wine that um, is our first to release every year. We're actually uh, getting ready to bottle Whole Cluster next month, March, which is, you know, immediately after the um, harvest. And it's ready to go. It's beautiful, um, very fruit forward, very spicy. Uh, So that carbonic um, maceration fermentation method mixed with um, about um, 50% of just traditional whole cluster fermentations is kind of the proprietary method behind that bottling. Okay, so 50% 50 carbonic maceration, which mm -hmm. is the process you described, and then blended in with 50% just uh, normal punch downs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we we do the punch down um, small bin process, but by keeping the clusters intact, so... um, so you're doing a whole berry fermentation. Right, right. And so we should say, you know, because I, I like that that branding of whole cluster, um, we should say, you know, a lot of produce, the opposite, if, if you, you know, the more commonly uh, method, just in general across the wine world, would be to de-stem. And so you don't have the, the tannins and maybe some of the, the, the bigger flavors from from the stem, uh, although Pinot producers are across the board, you know, sometimes in Burgundy they de-stem, sometimes they don't, and, and everybody has their, their preferences, right? Yeah, and it's very vintage-specific, you know, in very warm years in some of our um, barrel-aged Pinot Noirs, we'll add back whole clusters to really kind of um, build some right. structure in some complexity because those stems have lignified and um, don't have any green flavors they're right. contributing to the blend. So those um, decisions are all very vintage-specific. Yeah, w- wonderful. Um, so then, so then, so that's kind of the, the workhorse. What what the whole cluster? What a lot of people see are there some other other ones in 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 broader distribution? Yeah. 
We have our Pinot Gris, uh, which is a stainless steel, white, dry white wine we make here. Right. Pinot Gris grows really well in our cool climate. It um, is a, um, a sibling to Pinot Noir, a mutation. And um, the wine has, you know, really retains its acidity and has these beautiful pear, green apple, even citrus flavors in warmer vintages. So we um, have Pinot Gris planted at all three of our vineyards, and um, and uh, we do whole cluster pressing of that so that the wine doesn't pick up any phenolics um, mm-hmm. and uh, has this kind of, uh, you know, more rounded finish. That's one that people will see um, across the country. We also have a growing rosé program um, with our whole cluster rosé. Um, kind of going back to that unique whole cluster fermentation method, um, two years ago, or last year, actually, last harvest, um, we, uh, we were noticing that our first, um, the first free-run juice that comes off of our whole cluster tanks is this beautiful pink, kind of vibrant color, um, you know, a color that rosés are. And instead of, you know, just putting that into the same tank that the Pinot Noir would go, we siphoned it off and put it in its own tank and let it settle. And we were like, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful rosé. It's a byproduct of this whole cluster Pinot Noir, and it actually improves the Pinot Noir by kind of that first free-run juice being separated. So the remaining wine is very concentrated, um, you know, deeper, richer color. And uh, so now whole cluster rosé is one that you'll find um, starting the spring, um, around the country. Wonderful. Well, uh, like I said before, Austin loves rosé, and so this would be more less of a less of the Provence style, and more of a, a little bit maybe a like a Chiaretto, um Italian, a little bit darker rosé. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is darker. Um, instead of being copper or salmon, it right. is a pretty vibrant um, pink when it's bottled, um, and especially in these warmer vintages, it has a lot of, um, you know, developed red fruit. You don't get as much minerality, but you really get um, some citrus and stone fruit coming in. And then a finish that is a little softer than um, kind of the, you know, bright acidities that you'll see in Provence. Right. Oh, boy, with some barbecue chicken or, (laughs) you know, something that, you know, that that could overpower. You know, we love love rosé and barbecue here. (laughs) Right. Well, we love it, too. Oh, wonderful. Well, um, if you're just joining us and tuning in, my name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM and K-O-O-P.org. And you can follow along with Willamette Valley Vineyards at WVV.com. Um, Christine Collier is on the line from uh, Oregon, and Michaela Popier is here in the studio. Uh, wonderful, wonderful lineup. So I'm I'm so impressed by the 40 wines that you make, and um, and then we have Pinot Gris, soon to come Rosé, um, and then the barrel selections. Michaela has something else, yeah. And the Rosé actually is currently in Austin. Oh, okay, wonderful. Okay. Um, oh, you, uh, Christine, you were saying that the 2016 vintage will will soon be be coming out. Right. Yeah, that's the wine that we um, are finalizing the blends on today here in the cellar. Um, We'll start bottling soon, and that will be for the new vintage, 
2016. Wonderful. I, I have a few, just a couple more uh, topics to talk with you about. Um, one is, uh, you know, I want you to talk about, you mentioned that all of your vineyards are sustainable. Um, can you mention where the, it seems like Oregon is really leading the way on that and um, and maybe give us a breakdown as far as sustainability as opposed to organics. Sure. I know that could be a long conversation, but... <laughs> yeah, but it's a worthy one. Yeah. Um, you know, we are native Oregonians here, Jim and myself, and really value the land that we've grown up on and mm. want to make sure that it can serve us and our wine grapes for years to come. Wine grapes uh, are not like other crops where they can be moved. When you plant a grapevine, it is in there, that ground for, you know, 50 to 100 years as right. long as you care for it. So soil health and um, vineyard health is very, very important. Uh, in uh, the late 90s, a collection of Oregon wine growers came together to work on their own um, uh, certified sustainable um, methods. Right. They really felt that there wasn't uh, a certification out there that was wine grape specific. There for, wasn't. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. I mean, that's a big problem that we're having. Yeah. Right. And, and also not cool climate specific. Right. You know, we deal with disease pressure up here that's different than what you would see in a Texas wine region or a California wine region where, um, you know, te- it tends to be um, botrytis, which is a mold and uh, mildew. Um, And these are things that are really threatening to our crops each year. So they started working on what are um, the parameters in which we want the Oregon um, vineyards to be farming to. And the live certification is what they came up with. It stands for low input viticulture and enology. And it's a um, set of standards that you have to qualify for And probably the best part of the program, in my eyes, is the part of continuing improvement. So you can't reach the certification and every year be uh, be compliant. You actually every year have to show how you're improving your sustainable practices. Um, For example, we're investing in some better composting practices to put back into our vineyards or... um, Maybe uh, it has to do with adding um, the uh, owl houses that we have here on the property that um, attract um, predator birds for natural pest control. You have to do those things every year in order to qualify. And um, that takes people really um, educating themselves on what improvements they can make and really being determined to do it. Wow. Um, so, so we can almost say that that certification is is almost better in a lot of ways than just seeing organic on the label. We believe so. Yeah. We've farmed organic in our Brno block um, in the mid uh, in late two thousands, and really found that organics um, wasn't tailored well enough to wine grapes. Um, there are things that you can do in organics that you just really wouldn't want to do, um, and. Uh, and it's also very challenging in, in rainier seasons, rainier vintages, which we do get right. a lot here in Oregon, um, that you don't have a lot of protections on your fruit if something were to happen. Right. So we really believe more in the live um, certification. And we're also, um, you know, have plans of taking some of our vineyards into biodynamic farming soon right. and looking at the whole farm approach 
um, with uh, really focused on soil vitality and building up natural immune systems for the wine grapes. So we do have plans of other farming methods that are not just the live certification, but the live certification really is a standard and one that other wine regions have now tailored um, as their own um, because it is, you know, third-party independent we audited the continual improvement is built into the you know DNA of the program. We have really intelligent people that are um, that kind of work out in the field, um, tailoring the the you know yeses and nos of what you can do each year. So it's not a one size fits all program. Right, and folks can see there's actually a a, a little icon on uh, for for wines that are certified live. Um, is there there's something that denotes it on the label? Is that correct? Yeah, we really believe that um, people are interested in where their food is sourced from, how it's grown. The same with their wines. Right. So we include the logo on the label. And um, once people are, you know, introduced to how rigorous live certification um, is, they often seek those out, at least in our West Coast market. And hopefully that's kind of sprawling um, to Texas and to the East Coast, that awareness of people that are really growing with respect to the land. Well, certainly Austin. I'm not sure about the rest of Texas, but (laughs) we're we're a little island here. I, I'm, I love that, and I and I I get asked all the time the, that whole debate, organic and and whatnot, and and so I thank you for that description and and it coming from somebody who is in in, in charge of making wine. Um, I think it's very important for the consuming public to understand, like you say, not always are organic methods the best for yeah. for the health of the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, well, wonderful, and we'll look. Uh, we'll we'll follow you on your biodynamic trail, um, and 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 wish you the best on that. Oh, uh, you. So you know, we talked a little bit about vintages. You mentioned the last couple of vintages being uh, warm and a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how you're uh, thinking about climate change and and and, and then maybe kind of talk about, let's start off with, you know, a, your, a brief description of the last, you know, three or four vintages uh, from your perspective. Sure. Um, well, 2013 was really kind of the start of this um, odd weather we've been having where it was a warm vintage um, that was completely interrupted by very extreme weather in the second week of September. So you had these warm conditions, and then we got nine inches of rain over two weekends in September and really um, threw us for a loop. So that's around harvest time, and rain around harvest time can be really tricky. Right. You know, here in Oregon at this um, estate, we get about 34 inches of rain a year. So to have nine inches fall within two weeks, those berries split open. They were subject to disease. We had to go through... um, you know, do passes to uh, remove the damaged fruit. Um, At the line, we had to put eight people, so four on each side of the sorting line to remove, you know, infected fruit. And it caused our our yield to be down 30% that year. It was that severe of weather. And uh, then 2014, 15, and 16 um, were the three warmest vintages on history, in history, um, so it's been very interesting each year navigating the conditions. 
We've had earlier um, bud break, so starting somewhere in April, where typically our vines weren't waking up until May. So we have to be on it in the vineyard to make sure the vineyard's ready to wake up, um, whether that's with composting and pruning um, additives to the soil. Uh, Throughout the growing season, everything's been just, we've had to move the crews to doing things earlier, um, a lot um, less canopy work to provide adequate shade so our fruit doesn't get sunburned. Those Pinot Noir clusters are so... um, uh, so susceptible to sunburn because it's a very thin-skinned grape, and that's why, right. you know, it's a medium-bodied wine. Um, the color tends to be more ruby and garnet. Um, so it really has changed our farming practices, and I take climate change here very seriously. As we've been uh, scouting future um, vineyard land to purchase and to develop, I've been looking at, you know, um, areas in the valley that are cooler, that are um, maybe higher elevation, ones that have um, volcanic soil types, which retain water better than a sedimentary soil. And all those things have really driven us to areas of this valley that, you know, a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have seen as the prime vineyard land. And now it's really opened my eyes that this is the future. It is... um, you know, it's good and bad. You know, it might be to the point where we start planting some north slopes to kind of slow down ripening in some of those years. And you feel that there's going to be plenty of nooks and crannies in the Willamette Valley as opposed to even uh, exploring further north in like Skagit County, Washington State, or, or, or something like that. I know there are folks scoping out Skagit County as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, I think for us is, you know, it's site specific and we really do think that there's plenty of premium ground here in the soils that we work with here in the Willamette Valley that were volcanic or came from, you know, the Missoula floods are really what kind of peaks our interest as being so well suited for Pinot Noir. So that's not to say that, you know, um, southwestern Washington um, can't, you know, grow um, varietal as well. That's just not where we're focused on. Yeah. Well, Christine Collier, I wanted to really thank you for your time. And Michaela Pope, thank you for coming into the co-op studios. Yeah, thank you for having us, Mark. It's been um, really great sharing our wines with the people in Austin. And uh, to chat more with you, I think it's amazing that um, this radio station devotes um, time to wine education <laughs> and what a fun topic yeah i'm constantly shocked too one <laughs> one one hour a week is uh is a lot to talk about wine but there is i think people i've gotten feedback that everybody is so shocked that i can fill an hour no problem talking about wine every week so i'm very happy to highlight uh willamette valley vineyards and and the region as a whole so thank you and and good luck with um with bud break and and all of your your activities in the upcoming months Thank you. Yeah, we hope to ha- um, have you come visit Oregon soon. All right, that will do it Do it for us today. What a wonderful interview with Christine Collier of Willamette Valley Vineyards and Michaela Pope. Huge thanks for having them come into the co-op studios. Uh, my name is Mark Rayshap. This has been another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. And uh, and that'll do it for this week. Uh, I do have a co-op announcement. Uh, we will be hosting our new volunteer orientation this evening at 6 p.m. So uh, if you're interested in getting involved at co-op, uh, go to koop.org. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix.